Let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for this gift, this privilege to gather together and worship you and learn from you. I pray you open our hearts to receive what you have for us from your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And good morning. My name is Andrew, and I'm a pastor on staff, and it's great to be with you. I hope you enjoyed some of the warmer weather while it lasted this weekend. Um, Yeah, I know it's already gone, but whatever. Um, I wasn't here last week to ask you how your Valentine's Day went, but I hope I hope it went well. Uh, Becca and I spent our Valentine's Day uh, recovering from colds we both had, which uh, was a lot of fun. Um, Nothing says I love you like being sick together. And uh, if you haven't tried it, I highly recommend it. It's a a bonding experience unlike any other. Um, Don't actually do that. But uh, because it was Valentine's Day, I I found myself reflecting on our marriage uh, quite a bit, and I I, uh, continue to be amazed at the power of a single promise to someone else to completely change your life. And uh, I've talked about this a little bit before here, but based upon this one commitment, this one relationship, uh, my life has completely changed. It's completely changed. And for example, there was a time where I could leave the office and head home any time I wanted uh, without calling ahead. Um... I could, you know, I could leave late and it was fine, and that's no longer okay at all. Um, <laughs> right? This one promise, my schedule now is, is in many ways kind of out of my hands, um, in, in a good way. Uh, my opinion, uh, husbands, you'll get this, my opinion used to be the most relevant one for any decision I was going to make, uh, but in many ways now it's the least relevant opinion <laughs> in any decision that I make. Uh, one promise to one person completely changed my life because promises, more than anything else, define our lives. Promises define the most significant relationships in our lives to our spouse, to our children, to our employer, to our employees, to our friends, uh, when you truly reflect on it. So uh, why do most of us, for example, show, we show up for work on Monday morning we fully expecting uh, to get paid for our work, right? Uh, why do we do that? Because we have a promise from our employer, it's called a contract, it's a a piece of paper, really, with signatures on it, that symbolizes a promise that we've made. And we bank our futures on it, we bank our lives on it, on that promise being true. And uh, children or young folks here, you you do the same thing. When When you come home, my guess is you fully expect your parents to, one, help you with your homework, and two, feed you dinner. Uh, probably not many of you have ever gone home truly wondering, am I, am I gonna, is someone going to feed me tonight? <laughs> and uh, that's because parents make a promise to you, make a promise to their children. Uh, they often never say it out loud, but they make a promise to take care of you. And you bet on that promise. Uh, you, you, don't e- it's, you, you bet on it so implicitly, you, it's so assumed in your life, you don't even question it anymore. It doesn't even cross your mind the possibility that they wouldn't take care of you. Uh, and these promises are the very foundation of how we live in the world. It's true of every one of us. Promises like this, they give us stability, they give our relationships meaning, they give us confidence in others' love and care for us. So at the bottom, what I'm saying, at the bottom of our existence, the very foundation of our lives, each one of us is a deep trust in promises. Promises that we often don't question anymore. And I bring all of that up because this passage in Hebrews chapter 6, which we just heard read, is all about promises. And the congregation behind this text that, that, that first received this, they were struggling to keep the faith, which in many ways meant for them, they struggled to believe in God's promises to them. That's the heart of their struggle. 
to believe that God would protect them as he said, that he would be with them as, they, as he said, and to provide for them. And in a word, all of those concepts are really summarized by one biblical word, which is they struggled to believe God would save them. Will God save us or not? And not only that, not only are they beginning to question that, they're beginning to uh, struggle with other promises, promises not made from God to make their lives easier or better. They're weighing the two, and the author is desperate to remind them that no promise, no matter how tempting it is, no guarantee, no salvation is better than God's in Jesus. And really, that's what this whole book of Hebrews is about. And we need this reminder too, just like they did, because if we live in a world, in a society that bombards us with promises. Have you noticed that? Constant bombardment. Uh, at, the, at their very core, if you think about it, every advertisement, every political speech is promising you a better life, a truer life, a more authentic life, a, a more comfortable, I mean, whatever that is, it's promising you something. And they're saying, give me your allegiance, give me your money, give me your attention, give me your time, give me your commitment, and all of that, give me your faith. Give me your faith. And I'll give you security, I'll give you The pleasure you seek, I'll give you the safety you desire, I'll give you the identity you're looking for. And whether we know it or not, we're betting our lives on these promises. And when we do not allow God's promise of salvation to define who we are, to take care of us, to protect us, it doesn't mean, if if we reject that, it doesn't mean we are people without faith. It simply means we have bought into a promise, another promise to define who we are whether that's your career, your money, your reputation, whatever that is that defines you. So this morning, we're all confronted by a question, I think. It's a question that comes out of our text. And the question is this, what, what are you betting your life on? What promise are you betting your life on? And uh, you are, don't get me wrong, you already are. Even if you're not a believer, you are betting your life right now on a promise. So what are you betting your life on? And what promise, if, you, if you're given the opportunity, what promise would you choose? And the author is going to tell us, and where we're going to spend our time making this argument, that you should, you should bet on Jesus. Bet on Jesus. There is no one better. There is no better promise that this life has to offer. And to do that well, to unpack that well, we need to talk about three things from this text. And if you're taking notes, this is where we're going. So the, these three things. We need to talk about the foundation of God's promise. We need to talk about the difficulty of God's promise. We need to talk about the guarantee of God's promise. So the foundation, the difficulty, and the guarantee. So first, the foundation of God's promise. So if you have your Bible and you haven't turned there yet, take it out. Turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Uh, it's a harder book to find. If you can find Revelation, it's the last book in the Bible, and then turn back left a few books, you'll find the book of Hebrews uh, chapter 6. And uh, let's start reading in, in verse 13 there. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Now there's a lot there that I just read. 
Uh, one thing I want us to hang on to for just a second is the, the mention of Abraham. The author mentions Abraham. And if you've read the Old Testament, you probably know who he is. He's one of the main characters in the Old Testament. Uh, the father of all of Israel, and he's the recipient, if you know his story, of, of some of God's most audacious promises in his life. Uh, for example, God promised Abraham that from him would come a mighty nation, even when he and his wife at the time were unable to have one child. Uh, God promised him uh, a home, a country, a nation, uh, when he was still wandering in the desert, when he was still a nomad. And God promised uh, to protect him and make him an influence for the whole world, to make him a somebody when essentially he was really just a nobody when God first met him, when he first met God, I should say. And the only assurance that God gives for these promises to Abraham, as the author points out, and really by proxy, that he, the only assurance he gives to any Christian, anyone who would follow after Abraham's footsteps, the only assurance he gives that he will fulfill his promise is himself. God swears an oath on himself, as you read that in the text. That's what the author is saying. Now, when we make promises to people, we tend to swear by things that are more sacred or more stable than we are, right? That's where things like, I swear to God, come from, or I swear on my life, or I pinky promise. Yeah, that one didn't count, right? But you get the idea. Uh, We do this, we do this because we know that although we may have every intention of fulfilling that promise in the moment that we make it, we also know that we may completely change our mind the next day. Our circumstances may change, our opinion may change, our resources may change, whatever that, ha- whatever that is. And so what we do when we make a promise that we really want to keep <laughs> is we invoke a higher power. We invoke a third party uh, to hold us accountable. And that, I mean, that's what an oath is. That's what a contract is, right? But when God promises, there's no more powerful person. There is no more objective and fair person. There's no one wiser than he is. So when God makes a promise, the foundation of his promise, no matter what it is, whether it's a promise to Abraham back then or a promise to us now, is his very character. It's himself. God says, you can trust me because you can trust my promises because you can trust me. And he swears an oath on himself. Now, if you're skeptical of the faith or you're new to the faith, you may be thinking, Uh, That's really self-serving of God. That's circular reasoning. Uh, You can trust me with your life because I'm trustworthy. Well, that's not very helpful. There's only one way to know if someone is actually trustworthy or not, and it's not because they tell you so. It's because they show you so. This person has a track record of keeping their promises, and, and most of us immediately are skeptical of God because we have not examined his track record. We haven't examined it. We haven't looked at it. We think we are the first people in the universe that God has made a grandiose promise to. And we're starting from scratch with him, but we aren't. And the Bible, in many ways, is here for us now. It's been preserved for us for thousands of years because it is a catalog of just how faithful God is to keep his promises. It's a track record. And if you don't believe me, read this book. It is, is in many ways, simply a history of God's promises made and his promises kept. When God swears on himself, he has a lot of compelling evidence here to win you over to his side. And perhaps more importantly even than that is that how strange it is, how strange a thing it is to question God's trustworthiness in his promises when God didn't need to promise us anything in the first place. You ever think about that? I think a lot of us who spend a lot of time in church often forget this basic point, that God did not need to promise you a thing. 
He didn't owe you anything. Which of us cares, for example, and here's, here's the analogy, which of us, for example, cares about an ant in our backyard and what it thinks of us, let alone make promises to it? Now, thank goodness God doesn't see us that way, but could we really blame him if he did? And it's helpful to remember that God is trustworthy in, the, in his character, and therefore we can trust his promises, and that's a big reason why we have Scripture. But don't forget how astounding it is that God promises us anything at all. And there are at least two implications of this that I want us to think about. And the first is that when God promises, he indebts himself to us. When he promises, he indebts himself to us. Because when you make a promise, you've indebted yourself to someone. You are giving them permission to hold you accountable to that promise and to bother you about it. Because you owe them now. And in one of the more powerful powerful parts of Abraham's story in the book of Genesis chapter 15... God commands Abraham to take a few of his animals and to cut them in half, to slaughter them, and then cut them in half and lay them side by side uh, on a path. And this was, this was a, a common uh, ancient practice in, in contract law. He commands uh, Abraham to do this, and, and this, the symbol is that both parties, when they made an agreement, would walk between these pieces as a symbol, as a reminder that it, should I fail in my obligation, I could suffer death as these animals did. That was just how you made contracts back then. And in one of the more shocking turns in this story in the Bible, God, God passes through these pieces, and Abraham does not. And it's as if God is saying, I make a promise with you, and I will own all of the repercussions. And who makes promises like that? Who says, I'll do this for you even if you fail, even if you don't hold up your end of the bargain? We don't do that. But God does. And the most powerful being in the universe, our creator and judge, looks at us and says, I promise to save you. I promise to protect you, to bring you into a new creation, a new world, without suffering or pain or death. If you follow me, I owe you that. I indebt myself to you. I promise. And when God swears on himself, he indebts himself to us. The second implication is this. When God promises, he wants our commitment, not our certainty. He wants our commitment, not our certainty. God's ultimate goal is not to get you to trust his promise. It's to get you to trust him regardless of what he promises you. You see, faith in the Bible is less about certainty and it's more about commitment. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, You are certain... We use the word certainty about facts. You're certain about facts. But you commit to people. Commitment is for people. God wants your commitment. And here's the example uh, that I wanted to share. When Becca and I got married, I didn't know what the future would hold. I didn't know what might happen to us. I didn't know what difficulties or trials could come. And ultimately, I didn't even know Becca that well. I thought I did. But any married couple will tell you that how, how little you actually know of one another when you first get married. I, I had relatively little certainty, but Becca didn't want my certainty. She wanted my commitment. My vows were not, I commit to you because I know exactly what's going to happen to us. Those were not my vows. The vows were, I commit to you regardless of what happens. And listen to them, in sickness or in health, for richer or for poorer, 
for better or for worse. It's not certainty in our circumstance. It's commitment regardless of our circumstance. God swears a prom- and his promises on himself because he wants our commitment to him, not our certainty in exactly how that's all going to work out. And that is why it is not incompatible, according to Scripture, and notice this, to be a person of incredible faith and struggle with doubt. It is not incompatible. Our certainty in God may be very weak, but our commitment to Him is what defines our faith. And you can think of it this way. One person can board an airplane with a tremendous amount of confidence and certainty that they're going to arrive at their destination. Another person can board the same plane filled with doubt and fear and uncertainty. Maybe you've seen that person. Maybe you've been that person. But both people, notice, are fully committed to that plane when it takes off. There's no going back. And at the end of the day, all that matters once the plane has taken off is if you've committed to the right plane. Not how good you felt about it when you did it. And that is why the foundation of all of God's promises is God himself. A promise is only as good as the person who makes it. And the author is reminding us that there is no stronger foundation There is no more worthy object of our faith than God himself. Because only the God of the Bible is so powerful that he can accomplish anything that he promises. But at the same time is so merciful, is so gracious that he would promise you anything at all. And if you're looking for a reason to trust God's promises more than others in your life, that may be number one. And as true as that is, committing to God, and as good as that sounds, committing to God in the way the author has been describing is incredibly difficult. I'm not going to lie. There are, there are no promises better than God's. There's no foundation better than God. But in some ways, his are also the most difficult promises to hang on to. Promise that we are free from death. The promise is that our, our pains and struggles and trials do not ultimately overtake us. Those are hard to hang on to. And we have to talk about this, the difficulty of God's promise. This is our next point. And the author hints at this difficulty in our text. He says in verse 15, And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now, as we said before, Abraham received some of God's most audacious promises in in all of Scripture. He had an intimacy with God. He had a commitment to God that the author says is worth striving for. He, he, He references Abraham as a model for us again and again and again. But if you actually look at his story, few had a journey of faith more difficult, more messy, more excruciating than Abraham did. Abraham was 75 years old when he first met God. 75. When when God told him he would be the father of many. And how long did Abraham wait after that moment for God to actually come through on that promise? 25 years. There's some people in this room who aren't even 25 years old. 25 years. And even then, after all that one child, one kid, not exactly the mighty nation Abraham was kind of counting on. And then Abraham died. And that's all Abraham saw of God's promise. It it would take hundreds of years before many of the promises God made to Abraham would actually come true, long after Abraham was dead. And it sounds terrible for a pastor to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. God has this way, if you read the Bible, God has this way of over-promising and under-delivering for hundreds, if not thousands, of years. 
when you read the Bible. You see it over and over again. And one of the truths of the Bible that we have to wrestle with is that God's promises are sure, but his timing is anything but. And the congregation that the author of Hebrews is addressing was beginning to understand this. They had given up, I'm convinced, had given up everything to follow Jesus. That they, were, they were in a culture that was hostile to their new faith. They probably lost friends and family and business and profits to follow Jesus. God had promised to save them. He promised to protect them. They had all these promises they were leaning on, but in his, ti- in his timing and in his way, not theirs. And that's really hard. God's promises were difficult to believe then. The, the proof is this letter. I think in some ways they're even more difficult to believe now. Because God's promises, as good as they are, unlike any other promise in our American capitalist culture, almost always requires us to wait and to suffer. And those are two things I think, culturally speaking, we do not do very well. And that's why the author mentions this word patience in verse 15. Patience is always required to obtain the promise. And frankly, it's, it's actually worse than it sounds in some ways, because when we think about patience, we often think in very passive terms. We think of waiting patiently at the doctor's office for our name to be called. We think of waiting in line at the DMV, thinking of all the millions of things we could be doing instead of waiting in line at the DMV right? But either way, we think of waiting patiently as sitting down and being quiet and looking at our smartphone. That's being patient. (laughs) And the word the author uses here, however, is not passive like that. It's active waiting. It's a day in, day out, sometimes monotonous, sometimes excruciating endeavor, being patient. And it doesn't just require us to say yes to God's plan and to God's promise every single day. It also requires us to say no to countless other promises, promises that provide instant relief and instant reward. And the best of us, even Abraham, give in to those promises at some point along the way. We lose patience. We choose expediency. And we become stingy because, and this looks a lot of different ways in our lives, we become stingy because we buy the promise that money is our real security. We become lustful because we buy the promise that sexual pleasure is the true answer to our problems, the best escape. Or we become isolated because we buy the promise that isolation is really the only means to true freedom, that other people are a problem. That list, right, could go on and on and on. And the longer you're a follower of Jesus, the longer you're a believer in God's promises, the more you see that God's promises don't necessarily make your life any easier. In fact, in the short run, they often make it harder. Consider this, choosing the narrow path, carrying your cross, dying to yourself, are some of the phrases that Jesus uses to describe a life that relies on God's promises. If you follow Jesus long enough, he'll ask you to do something hard and something that will be uncomfortable, something that may bring suffering into your life. And trust in God does not guarantee a life free of pain. And any cursory reading of Christian history over the last 2,000 years confirms this point. For the most part, those who have banked their lives on God's promises of salvation have suffered for it, they have lost for it, And many have died for it. Still waiting for the day when God's promises would come true. And some of you right now are thinking, are you actually a pastor? Because this is the worst sales job I've ever heard. (laughs) And you're right, it's not a good sales job. But no red-blooded American business person would recommend selling a product this way. 
This is the best, you know, this is the best product on the market. It'll completely change your life. It takes about 300 years to ship. <laughs> you will not regret this purchase. <laughs> Can I get your credit card information right now? Or, right. And yet, that is exactly what God does throughout Scripture over and over and over again. And so why in the world, why in the world would we commit to this? Of all the promises this life has to offer, the promise of power, of pleasure, of material things, of comfort, whatever it is, why would we choose God over those things? Why would anyone choose waiting and suffering over convenience, the path of least resistance, over instantaneous gratification, that we have more today than we've ever had in human history? Why would we bet everything on God's promises to us when we could be long dead before God makes good on any of them? Well, there's really only one reason that you would do that. It's the only reason anyone here trusts God's promises in the first place. His promises about who we are, about what he's doing, about where we're going. And that one reason is that God didn't just make a promise, he guaranteed his promise. He guaranteed it. And this is our last point, God's guarantee of his promise. If you look at verse 19 in our text We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we'll talk more about Melchizedek and Jesus' high priestly role next week. So if you're confused by that now, it's really not my problem. Um, Come back next week. (laughs) But just before that... The author says that Jesus, is, he says Jesus is a hope that enters behind the curtain. And the curtain here represents the temple curtain in the Jewish temple, the inner sanctuary. It was called the Holy of Holies. And this was, this was the, where God's presence was said to dwell. And really, it was a picture, it was a powerful picture, a symbol of heaven, where death is defeated and suffering is no more. It's a picture of God, all of God's promises fulfilled, this place. It's a symbol of perfect existence. It's a symbol of the life we all long for. It's this holy of holies. It's heaven itself. And the author is saying that Jesus has already received the promise that God makes to us. He is already resurrected from the dead. He is already vindicated by God, which means his life, his faith was proven right already. Jesus is already living a new life in glory and honor. And notice those are all things that God promises to those who follow him. We can't see them yet, but God guarantees them in Jesus. Jesus' life and death and resurrection are God's guarantee that he will make good on his promises if we just hold on. Because he did it with Jesus, he will do it with you. And that's why the author says that those who choose to commit to God and his promises have a hope that goes beyond the curtain. A hope that's already there, it's already arrived. Why would we choose a life of waiting and suffering? Well, because we have hope. And it's a hope unlike anything else in the world. You see, when we think of hope, we often think of wishful thinking. We think, oh, I hope it doesn't rain today. I hope I pass my driver's test, whatever it is. Lots of things offer a hope like this in our world. Lots of things offer a preferred future. That all, you know, that your dreams will come true if you do this. But biblical hope is different. 
Biblical hope is not a preferred future. It is a certain future based on something that's already happened in the past. It's a certain future based on something that's already been done. You see, it's one thing to wish for life after death. Lots of people in the world wish for life after death, but the only way to guarantee there is life after death, that resurrection is possible, that heaven is real, is for someone to die and come back and to tell you. No other promise in the world is guaranteed by a person who came back except for the promise of God. And in a world full of false promises, only God gives us not only his word to trust and to follow, he gives us his own son as a guarantee. And there is no guarantee like that in the world. And for thousands of years, Christians have proved this over and over, that a guarantee like this is worth suffering for, it's worth waiting for, it's worth dying for. But that's not the only reason God's promise is worth it. It's not just worth it because in the end, it all works out. It's worth it because God always promises refuge even in the midst of our suffering, of our waiting, of our doubting. Even in the midst. And the author hints at this at verse 18 when he calls Christians everywhere, I love this, everywhere for all time, we who have fled for refuge. Christians, he's saying, are those people who have fled to refuge. And the idea behind this Greek word is a refuge for people at the end of their rope. There's nowhere else to run, completely incapable of saving themselves. Uh, Those are Christians. And that refuge, that running to God, even when we don't feel him near, even when his salvation seems so far away, is something that only God's promises can provide. And and I'll tell you why. Pastor Tim Keller describes a story of two men who are captured and they're thrown into prison at, at the same time. And just before they're imprisoned, One man learns that his wife and his child are dead. One man learns that his wife and his child are still alive. And in the first couple of years of imprisonment together, the first man just wastes away. He curls up and he dies. But the other man endured and stayed strong and walked out a free man ten years later. Now notice, these two men experienced the very same circumstances, but responded completely differently. Because while they experienced the same present, they had their minds set on a different future. And it was a future, it was the future that determined how they handled the present. And you see, only God's promise offers us refuge wherever we are, whatever is happening, because only God's promise truly transcends our circumstances now. And only God's promise can answer our fears and our doubts and our failures because the beauty of the Christian faith is not that it depends on your strength and your will, but his. So think about your life right now. Think about your life. What promise are you betting it all on? Because you are. Is it your career? Is it your family? Is it your money? Is it your grades? Is it your performance? Is it your reputation? What people think of you? What is it? What promise are you terrified will turn out to be a lie, will turn out to fail you? And then think about what you have given up in service to that promise. What have you given up? What have you missed out on? Is it it a sense of peace in your life? Are you always anxious? Is it time with your family? Are you overworking to make sure you get that promotion, to make sure you get that recognition? Is it friendship? Are you too selfish or isolated for people, for you to trust people, for them to trust you? Have you given up on those things? 
What have you given up in service to this promise? And then with that in mind, ask yourself this question. What has that promise you have built your life on ever given up for you? When is that promise, what has it done to guarantee that it will save you? What has that promise done? Has it comforted you in your doubt? Has it strengthened you in your weakness? Has it healed you in the midst of your suffering? When did it do that? What promise could ever compete with God's promise in Jesus? What suffering, what waiting is not worth enduring for a God who promises to save and then proves that he will by giving up everything he has for you? If you find yourself doubting, if you find yourself struggling or questioning God's promises in your life, if you doubt you're accepted in Jesus, that you're worthy of his love, if you find yourself in incredible pain and you can't imagine making it through the next day, let alone the next week or month or year, whatever it is, remember that God, unlike any other person in your life, does not say to your weakness, does not say in your moment of weakness, does not say to you, try harder, do better. Instead, he says, flee, run, run. You cannot do it, but run to me and you will find refuge. My promises do not rest in your strength, they rest in mine, and I can do it, and I swear on myself, I swear on my son Jesus, that I will save you. There is no promise better than that. Let's pray. Father, for the guarantee we have in Jesus' resurrection that he is with you now, that everything you promised comes true in him. We are eternally grateful, Father, and may that thankfulness, may that joy, may that good news prompt a life of peace and a life of trust in you and everything that you promised. Give us strength today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.